From 26, this is Rachel and Katie. Welcome to 26. This is our first episode of season one. Thank you for joining us. I am one of your co-hosts, Katie, and also one of 26 diagnosed with epilepsy in the U.S. I was diagnosed with juvenile myclonic epilepsy, JME, at the age of 12 and have lived with uncontrolled tonic-clonic seizures or grand mal seizures ever since. I am here with my co-host, Rachel, who has lived the exact opposite of my epilepsy experience. Hey, Rachel. Hey, Katie. So we are seeing each other virtually right now on Zoom, but we did meet earlier today. I have a very different experience from Katie, but we are brought together because of epilepsy, united because of it. My experience was losing my boyfriend, Joe, who will bring up in this podcast quite a bit, if you hear Joe, uh, to epilepsy two years ago. We, we have two very different experiences of epilepsy. We are both very inspired by each other's stories to be here and to share what it's like the day-to-day living with epilepsy, loving somebody with epilepsy. Losing someone with epilepsy. Losing somebody with epilepsy even if you don't even know somebody with epilepsy, it's just having a better understanding and awareness of what it's like to, to have a, a somewhat debilitating disease state. Depends on the day, right? Yes, yes. And uh, it is, it's a day-to-day, uh, month-to-month. And uh, it is interesting, as Rachel mentioned, we are two complete opposites of an epilepsy experience. And this podcast is to bring awareness and hope and a whole lot of uh, fun, uh, some laughs to listeners and feel free to share it and give information to anyone that you feel could benefit from this. Absolutely. And Katie, you have some crazy stories to tell about growing up with epilepsy as well as I have some crazy stories to tell about Joe and uh, how he controlled his epilepsy in college. But we're going to be talking about history too, but also presidents who've had epilepsy, famous people who've had epilepsy, interactions with epilepsy in this current culture. We are celebrating this day, our first episode of season one, uh, by hopscotching through 4,000 years of a really mind-blowing history that has to do with this disease. The progression uh, and awareness that has happened over 4,000 years is is rather intriguing and we are on the right path, but uh, there's still progress to be had. We are going to, in this first episode, just going to touch base very briefly over some very historical ways that epilepsy was thought of, epilepsy was diagnosed, and how epilepsy was treated. 
And I think the education brings enlightenment. This is a fun episode. This is a really fun episode. Very interesting. I was shook about what I read. <laughs> it, yeah, again, the mind blowing is a very uh, great way to put it because to think about it, 4,000 years isn't that long, long ago. Like she said, this is 4,000 years of history and starting as early as Mesopotamia and Babylon, as well as in ancient Egypt, we start to get like the first texts, the first reports of epilepsy or disease states similar, but it was so observational back then without the medical terms. If you strip those away and you strip away a plethora of medical knowledge, you just have what you see, what you observe. And epilepsy, if you had no idea what it was, could look pretty scary, right? Oh yeah. It looks like you're possessed. It looks like you have just been beat up. I mean, and that's a tonic clonic. And if you were to have like small, like a partial complex seizure where you're still like standing upright, but you're looking blankly at a person, a person would think you're absolutely nuts. Like I'm sitting here talking to you, having a conversation. And then that person that just suffered the seizure has no recollection of any of that and can't have, you know, a a conversation. And so between those two things where you have the actual tonic clonic where the body's moving and you look like you're, you have a demon inside of you to the partial complex seizure where you just like stare into space, but you're, you know, still sitting upright or standing two completely different things, but can be perceived as the same. The person is crazy or demonic and possessed. I think the history is largely biased and looking specifically at tonic-clonic seizures Mm -hmm. and epilepsy, less so the epilepsy that might mimic, like you said, like a daydream or staring into space. Since it was so observational and since it was, they were lacking Um, adequate medical knowledge and research, they would observe these tonic-clonic seizures and they would think exactly like you said, they're possessed, these people are evil, Mm -hmm. they had some theological explanations behind it as well, phlegm on the brain, they thought it was supernatural or a curse from one of their gods, Mm -hmm. and because of this, that influenced the crazy treatments they came up with to treat epilepsy, such as bloodletting, trephination, herbs. When you mentioned that people that were suffering seizures might possibly be receiving signs or, um, you know, possibly witches or things like that, we just talk about um, Socrates in particular, because Socrates, he was forced execution and he died by suicide. He poisoned himself in 399 BC because he publicly claimed he was receiving divine signs and therefore they felt that he did not believe in the gods of the state. And because he was speaking out about this, he 
was literally forced to commit suicide. And he suffered simple partial seizures in childhood. He couldn't do certain tasks in at the initiation of the seizure. He, you know, he would stall out and he would stop. And this unique behavior was noted. It was definitely concluded that Socrates had a mild form of temporal lobe epilepsy. It's so sad to know that they felt he was possessed and receiving divine signs. Until he was isolated completely by his own community. Yes, his own community turned against him. And then I also have a note here about Aristotle, who Aristotle uh, was also uh, one of the first sufferers of epilepsy. And he, he actually pointed out the connection between genius and epilepsy. He believes and noted that there was a intricately connected brain activity, that the increase of brain activity during a seizure, he believes led to a touch of genius in people that are diagnosed with epilepsy and have the, the disease. He felt and noted that these this increased brain activity in the certain areas of the brain can enhance one's natural abilities, whether it be painting or singing or piano or, um, you know, we have, pre like we said, we have presidents that we, we need to talk about um, when we're talking about history of people that have um, fallen with not, I hate to say, fallen ill. I can't even believe I just said that. But when we just go through the history in itself and the people that have been successful that have been diagnosed with epilepsy, it is genuinely there that I believe that Aristotle is correct, that there is a, a direct link between genius and epilepsy to a degree. That reminds me that there are a ton of research articles out there looking at different therapies that create some sort of excitatory state within the brain in specific regions, yes. such as maybe in the hippocampus, where it's known to be one of the areas salient in memory mm -hmm. and memory disorders, like Alzheimer's, for example, having some sort of excitatory medicine that would, that would specifically target the hippocampus and help the brain make more connections and strengthen connections between neurons to enhance memory. It's the same idea with, with what he was talking about with Aristotle and potential genius connections with epilepsy, that excitatory state in specific regions in the brain, yes. across the brain. Now with, during a, during like a tonic clonic seizure, for example, I mean, it's almost like frying the brain, right? It's, yeah. it's so excitatory that yeah. it can, it can actually cause cell damage and cell death, but perhaps a little bit of that excitatory action can enhance your ability, whether that be yes. pre-seizure or it could be post-ictal. Just knowing prior to me having a seizure, I have what's called an aura. There's times where I can have auras and not suffer a seizure. So that might be the time that he's talking about. It's not necessarily the person falls to the ground to have the tonic clonic. 
but during my aura, I might be a little extra creative and I might, might be able to work on some clay, do a painting, make some extremely great food, um, you know, just do things that I typically wouldn't do if I was just having a, a normal day. But because I'm having an aura or getting some excitement in my brain, then there's a possibility. And it's not necessarily me being a genius, but there are definitely geniuses out there that have epilepsy. I'm going to make a very bold statement when I say I think there is a connection between epileptic people and creativity. Just think of the sheer number of super talented, super genius yeah. um, singers, writers. Yes. Poets, yeah. incredible people. I, I say it's a bold statement because there's obviously, and I, and we run across that when we go through history because, you know, not a lot of people talk about it. And like you said, a lot of it was just observation-based. There's not a lot of science articles and journals that were published based on people and their epilepsy. They say Beethoven with piano. And you have so many different artists and and functioning and functioning beyond one's normal capacity. And I do, I do believe, and I agree with you, there is a connection. Fast forwarding a little bit or a lot to the medieval times during the middle ages, they thought epilepsy was largely contagious, but in the Renaissance, there were some huge strides to recognizing epilepsy as more of a physical illness. And that's why I have this, this image. It's by Hernonymus Bosch. He had created this in the late 1400s. The painting is titled The Extraction of the Stone of Madness. What do you see, Katie? So in this picture, this is a man in a chair laid back three people surrounding him. One looks like a nun with a Bible maybe or a book on her head. Um, Practicing her posture. Yeah, definitely her posture. As I said, he's sitting in a chair kind of laid back with his head. He's getting his head cut open by a gentleman, basically in a tin hat. The man in the red tights just sitting there awake and another man in kind of a black cloak with waving his hand during the procedure. Looks like um, a monk, right? Yes. They're literally cutting his head open while he's awake to get something out of his brain. That's right. This is a painter who was highly influenced by orthodox views. He was known and renowned for his disturbing and strange paintings. What kills me is the expression of all these different characters, right? The the nun looks bored. Mm -hmm. The monk is watching the surgery, perhaps blessing the area where his head is cut open. I'm guessing the tin man is is the surgeon. Yeah. We should post this on our Instagram, by the way. Yes, great. And and then the guy's just 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 laying back in his chair, kind of maybe in and out of consciousness with his mouth 
a little bit of gape. A gape. And I can't really tell if he's like gripping the chair or if he just has his hands kind of laying. I mean, it looks like he has one hand laying and the other kind of maybe gripping. He's tied to the chair, if you notice that. Oh, around his belly. Yes. And then the beautiful country scene in the background. <laughs> the extraction of the stone of madness. The madness being epilepsy, epileptic seizures, and the belief that it can come down to a physical object that is affecting the body, which is a huge stride, right? We're not talking about possession, no. right? We're not talking about some sort of theological explanation. We're talking about an explanation that is largely physical. And one of the many beliefs at the time was epilepsy was a, was a almost like a stone in the brain. And once you extracted that, I'm not sure what they ended up extracting from this man's head, but once you extracted that tissue, the madness would cease. The madness being the epileptic fit. I would go on the lines of possibly this is a lobotomy, their kind of version. Either way, they're dissecting this, this poor man's head. Uh, yeah. And before the time of anesthesia and <laughs> there's no gloves on his hand. No. And they're outside doing the surgery. Uh, just outside, you know. So it's just, it's just fascinating to see some of the interpretations at the time of epilepsy and just from this painting alone, which is grotesque, but it's also funny. It's satirical. It's, it sets a tone for the Renaissance period. A lot of trying, a lot of failing. I wanted to focus particularly on the herbal remedies they used for epileptic patients. Yeah, so intriguing. I can't wait to hear this. There are some re researchers, um, Michael Adams et al., who have done this for a variety of disease states, looking at herbal remedies throughout history or specifically in the uh, medieval and Renaissance periods to uh, treat that specific neurological illness. And one of their more recent studies they published was on, was in the Journal of Ethnopharmacology in a paper looking at 221 plants that were used for epilepsy or thought mm -hmm. to be used for epileptic patients. And they concluded that less than 5% of these plants were supported by any pharmacological data or evidence that would lead one to believe that this could potentially be a treatment for epilepsy or potentially control epilepsy. Less than 5%? Yeah, less than 5%. But it was really interesting because these are some different herbs we have in our kitchen cupboards. Looking at those plant remedies, they looked at like the ion channel effects and the anticonvulsant effects in both in vivo and in vitro studies. There were even recent studies on around 20% of these plant remedies. So there is something to it. Some of the herbs that were used included anise, coriander, chamomile, St. John's wort, lavender, lemon balm, sage, peonies. 
Oh, wow. I can make curry. I can make bars of soap. I can take a soak in all of that. Those are, those are all except for the peonies, but that's like one of my favorite flowers. I never talked heard anybody talk about or explore like any sort of benefit to peonies. So they use these different herbs um, in a variety of ways. Most of them mixed it with alcohol, like white wine. Oftentimes they added it with sugar or they'd make it into an oil and incorporate it into um, their meals or rubbed the, the oil into their skin. A very, very similar to this day, how they um, utilize cannabis. They make it tinctures exactly. and rubs and um, edible uh, so you can eat it for medicine. So very interesting. Wow. They, they were doing this in the 14s and 1500s as well during this Renaissance period. It was interesting. So like anise seed, I'm going to test you. So what do you think was anise a potential treatment, do you think, to controlling epileptic seizures? Anise, um, medicine, black licorice. I no, I think it enhances them. You're right, actually. Yeah. Research points to calcium levels being elevated. This anise was usually made into an oil and then added to wine, and mm-hmm. it can lead to like overexcitement. Yeah. So overexcitement would not be good for epileptic seizures, right? Which is yeah. already a plethora of overexcitement in the brain. But on the other hand, but cinnamon reduced the calcium influx when glutamate was activated. So we have some opposing effects between anise and cinnamon. They looked at coriander and that enhanced GABA effects, which led to this being more of an anxiolytic effect, Mm -hmm. which would potentially help seizures, help the patient sleep you're getting rest and basically neurons are able to function at a more stable rate. Yeah. Reduce that excitatory state. Same with um, lavender and lemon balm. They would put that into schnapps or white wine. And that also had some um, gabaminergic effects. The St. John's wort had definitely conflicting research evidence, whether it's more excitatory or more inhibitory, uh, whether it's an anti or pro epileptic herb. And there's also a link between sage flowers and tonic clonic seizures. I've um, like sage, the, er- the herb sage yes. or the flower that comes off of the plant, the leaves, because I believe I've heard that and same with fennel. Yeah, I would like to research both of those actually, because I like sage, but there's something about sage that I can only handle it in very small, like I don't even really use it as an herb in cooking. How do you feel after you have too much sage? It makes me sick. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was interesting. And they, they were talking about some sort of like toxic effect with sage but peonies was actually one of the most common cited herbs and that had more of an anxiolytic effect. Oh so my gosh. A beautiful peonies flower having some anxiolytic links. I would have thought like amaranth or something like that. Wow. <laughs> I want to do research on that one too. 
just everyday herbs that we use in our cooking or that we grow in our garden can have some gabapentinergic or um, effects on some of the excitatory transmitters, NMDA and glutamate, aspartate. They weren't completely off when the, and during the Renaissance period when they utilized some of these herbs and treatment of epilepsy, right? So there, there seems to be some sort of connection with, with a few of these herbs and having either like that anxiolytic effect or reducing some of the excitatory activity to help epileptic patients. Although some of their methods seemed really far out there, like extracting the stone of madness or um, some of the various herbs they decided to use in the treatment of epilepsy and controlling seizures, they still had some, like you said, understanding of the foundation that this is more of an excitatory illness and that these patients need to be calmed down or put mm -hmm. to sleep. Mm -hmm. And what's so funny when you say put to sleep is that's exactly my last and final medicine in my rescue meds is basically a general anesthetic and that goes into my nose and I then basically just pass out and my brain can relax, my brain can calm down and my body can then rest and start recuperating from the seizure. So yes, way back then to currently, that is the absolute goal is, is to get the patient asleep and the brain calm. That makes me wonder, do you think there were any rescue medications back then? If not medications like rescue herbs, like I wonder if any in these lists, peonies were the most common cited. So perhaps if, I mean, if somebody was having back-to-back -back seizures, I don't know, they would mix some of these herbs perhaps in the white wine or vinegar yeah. or the schnapps yeah, and then pour it down their throat, oh, hoping that they don't choke on it yeah, or no. oil into them. I don't know, but it, there is a possibility that some of these could have been a rescue med. I mean, I think la lavender, you know, that's one of the first things I think of. Um, mm -hmm. and, and lemon balm, those are two very calming herbs for your body, just the scent of them. So I don't know ingesting them, but like, I can, I could only imagine that they are definitely starting to experiment and try different herbs. And I, I call them cocktails. Yes. Cocktails where you're having multiple things in your body to try to help you achieve that goal of, of, you know, calming your brain. Who knows if these were used to consistently control epileptic seizures? Ooh. Wouldn't that be an every day someone was taking, you know, like a microdose of, you know, mixture of coriander. Yeah. Coriander, St. John's wort, lavender, and then, and then rubbing some lotion and tincture on there. Who knows? We're not doctors. We're only just <laughs> talking about things, but I think it plays into just how important diet is when it comes to epilepsy. And just when you think about how many neurons we have in our gut alone it's almost like we have like a brain in our gut yeah. and what we ingest is really important and could potentially communicate with our brain mm -hmm. and enhance or inhibit some of those excitatory channels 
Yeah. And herbs are rubbing it on your skin and tinctures under the tongue with like alcohol carriers are some of the fastest way your body can absorb medications. So when I'm going back to me um, and my rescue meds, there's two different types of rescue meds. If you're feeling a very strong aura or there's a person around you that feels that you're about ready to have a seizure and you're still coherent enough, then you can put a rescue pill in your mouth and have it dissolve in your mouth. And that makes me believe that all of these daily pharmaceuticals that I live off of were based off of plants. With our research, especially in the last decade or two, that has come along, it's come a long ways in developing pharmaceuticals that can control epilepsy. There's no cure to epilepsy, but they can control some of these seizures. Yet we still have 50 million people worldwide with epilepsy. And this is from the epilepsy, US Epilepsy Foundation site. And one third of those people have uncontrolled seizures. Yeah, and I wonder, it just makes me think like that's one third of people with uncontrolled epilepsy. That's a huge chunk of people. That's millions of people you're talking about. What about back then? Did we see similar (laughs) rates? If people were compliant about perhaps taking some of these herbs that had some sort of inhib, you know, GABA effect in their brain, did they have a similar rate of like a third with controlled seizures or was it more of a poor rate? Was it nine out of 10 people had uncontrolled seizures? I would say they had probably a worse rate as we know that a lot of people didn't talk about it, hit it and stuff. And I I believe there's probably a lot of deaths related to epilepsy, but weren't necessarily called epileptic deaths. I think the rate we see is a lot less than what it was, obviously. Is it sad to still say that one third of us diagnosed with epilepsy are still uncontrolled? Yes. To be one of the fourth most common neurological disorder that strikes to have that much unknown. Honestly, epilepsy doesn't get that much acknowledgement. ALS gets more acknowledgement. Parkinson's gets more acknowledgement. There's there's a lot more MS and epilepsy affects all ages. It never goes away. And so I, I think that we have a rate that still could be helped out, whether that is due to advocacy, therapies, pharmaceuticals, hopefully in the next hundred years, it goes from one third to you know, an eighth or something, you know, I mean, that's, that's diminishing. Yeah. That's being very wishful, but Joe was part of that one third. So would you consider yourself part of that one third as well? I am. Yeah. Yeah. I'm yeah, I am. And that therefore I have a very, very, very high risk of sudden unexplained epileptic theft, which is SUDEP. That's what Joe died from too. Uh, I believe that yes, we will make more strides in the epilepsy therapies. But, you know, as, as you know, working in the medical field, unfortunately, a lot of the medicines that we have coexist with a whole lot of other neurological disorders. You, you really have to be fair to yourself as you're trudging through the 
the diagnosis and figuring out what medicine works best for you and your control of your seizures until hopefully one day the, the pharmaceutical company has a plethora of medicines for all of us to choose from. Until then, we, we don't have that, so. When you get into the treatment side of epilepsy, it's very complex, right? I mean, they're utilizing the ones that came out in the 1930s still. Yes. And yes. hey, that's the only one that worked for Joe. I, I it, and it blows my mind. It's like, can't they take phenobarbital and that basis of that medicine and make something that has less side effects, but does, I mean, I, I see so many more advances happening in other diseases. It just, it makes me wonder. And when I sit here and we talk about, you know, herbs back in the Renaissance days that like, we're not far. I mean, I hate to say it. We're not far off. We're still living basically in the Renaissance days as far as our treatments go. Yes. Obviously I feel like we there's less people dying of epilepsy than there were back then, but we, we have leaps and bounds of progress that we can make and should be making. Right. Well, and also the, even in the Renaissance, they recognize that you need to maybe put patients to sleep and reduce that excitatory state, but how is a patient with, who's epileptic going to function with that much sedation? And I hear it all the time in like the disease states of bipolar and schizophrenia, a lot of these uh, anti-seizure medications, antipsychotic med medications have that heavy sedation side effect. Joe experienced that too. Yeah. And on top of his medicine, he had to take like four sleeping pills a night at yeah. the beginning. And how are you supposed to function as a college student as a, he was an engineering student you know, immense amount of studying, staying up late though with friends as well, drinking, you're tired. You never seem to catch up on sleep when you're in such a rigorous course as you experienced in college. And on top of that, your medication makes you sleepy. You can't just go ahead and drink an energy drink because that's going to affect your <laughs> no. excitatory yeah. state. No. Yeah, that's exactly. No, you can't do any of that stuff. You can't have a 7 p.m. cup of coffee to help you get through the night of studying. You know, it's just, those are the things that, no, we can't do. And it does make you tired and it, it could, it could be worse, but it does, it does. And you do find ways to just kind of work around it, but you're, you're, you're so right. They, the side effects, that's a whole nother podcast. We're going to talk about being a good patient and medication management. <laughs> side effects are a real deal. And I think that that is a, you know, we're totally getting sidetracked on the history here, but the side effects are a real deal on why people will or won't take their medicines that they're prescribed. But hey, the options we have now far outweigh what was available in the Renaissance. What we also see in the Renaissance is that they believe the cause of epilepsy, and to this day, we don't have an exact cause of epilepsy. We understand a little bit more about what's going on in the brain, but there's no exact cause. But in the Renaissance, they believe that some causes could be like mercury from, or it could be from a tumor that's still plausible today, or like from TBI, traumatic brain injury. Yeah. 
other causes that it was a, a curse from a witch. There were animal spirits that were in possessing somebody's body and controlling their motor skills, causing them to shake and convulse. Then there's also the belief that it came from a specific body part. So if I'm having a tonic-clonic seizures and I'm, my body's thrashing or my arm is particularly thrashing, they believe that it could perhaps be originating in my arm or my fingers and toes, but still some sort of physical origin for the most part. There was one physician in the Renaissance, Paracelsus, who described epileptic fits as a thunderstorm. And I think that is such a cool image. You've, you would describe it, I think, as some sort of like, like lightning in the brain, right? Yeah. So when I did my creative writing in, in high school, when epilepsy kind of came back and it reared its head on me, I actually I used basically that terminology. I, I explained it to my peers as a, a lightning storm in my brain. It makes sense with all the electrical activity happening. It, it must feel like a lightning storm sometimes. Yeah, and it's just going, you know, it's going off. And a lightning strike is a zig and a zig and a zig and a zig. It's not a straight line from A to B. And right. that's exactly what is the neuron is just going burr, burr, burr off the walls instead of going from a one point to the other point where it needs to. And physically, you look like you're being zapped almost yeah almost yeah. like electrocuted very much so yes your your whole body goes into such tense yeah it feels like you've been electrocuted you've just ran a marathon you've just been ran over by a truck um like I mean the list goes on for how you feel when you wake up because of that intense electricity going through your body and your muscles almost like just coming out from the electric chair in some ways right just extreme I, fatigue like what just happened just yeah. your whole body hurts you've said yeah your whole body hurts like what just happened what day is it um yeah brain a severe brain fog um yeah you don't know it's very hard to, and, and then once you really, you know, I, I have um, a lot of oral injuries as well. So I can't talk, I can't eat. A lot of things kind of happen to your body <laughs> and they're not pretty. So you mentioned that, that foggy state when you're coming out from an epileptic seizure, that reminds me. So I read in this research article by Diamantis called Epilepsy During the Middle Ages, Renaissance and Enlightenment. I'm going to read you this quick paragraph right here. It just, it kind of blows my mind. It's talking about, I'll just read it to you first. Yeah. Constantinus, the African in 1020 to 1087 AD, a translator of Greek medical and Islamic texts, advises the parents of epileptics to take the patient to church during the second week following the Pentecost and expose them to the Friday or the Saturday mass. He noticed the similarity among epilepsy, lunacy, and demonic possession, proposing specific instructions to differentiate them. 
A formula commanding the demon to recede would be spoken into the ear of the patient. So they're whispering into the ear of the patient when they're at this post-Pentecost mass, some sort of dialogue, like, a, like an ex exorcism, yes. right? Yes. If the patient was a lunatic or possessed by demons, the words would provoke a death-like state for an hour. Afterward, he would be able to answer anything he might be asked. If, however, the afflicted did not fall down, this would prove him to be an epileptic. Ooh. Are you with me? <laughs> I'm barely with myself. I know. Well, it, it's mind blowing because if you like, oh man, to suffer a seizure and then have to answer questions, I, um, I couldn't even imagine and to be in a, a death-like state. Yeah, you're definitely in a death-like state. It's a kind of a funny story, but it's not really. Uh, when I had my five seizures in less than 24 hours and I was at the hospital and the nurse asked me, she's like, so do you know what year it is? And I just looked at her like I was sure as a cucumber and I said, yeah, 2009. And she just went back to her computer, like I'd answered the question correctly. And then as the fog wore off more and more, and I thought to myself, I answered that question. She asked me completely, completely wrong. And so my doctor and I were just laughing about it. And she's like, oh, it's probably because you just really had a great year in 2009 and just I knew that that was the year. What a memorable year. Yeah. And I'm like, oh my goodness. So yeah, to judge a person, especially. And I can also say that sometimes after a seizure, I'll have a very short post-ictal stage and, you know, brain fog won't be so bad. And I can really like, you know, get it together quickly. And then other times they're just way harder on me and, and, you know, my body hurts more and, you know, I have to sleep a lot longer. And so there's um, kind of also depends on the, how severe the seizure was. So I, that's just incredible and incredible in a bad way, <laughs> in a bad way. I experienced something similar during the early stages of grief. I think it was a month after Joe died, I saw my second and final counselor who I love. Her name's also Joe. I went in and I filled out the paperwork the first day. I completely butchered my birth date. <laughs> like, but without even thinking about it, she was going through it, my paperwork afterwards. And she's like, you were born last year. And I was like, what? It didn't even occur to me, but you're just in such a brain fog that you feel like, yes, I'm for sure answering everything correctly. Things that I can recite any yeah. time of the day in any state, you know, my name, my yeah. security number, my birthday, like those are the things we know. <laughs> and I couldn't even do that. I confidently put down the wrong answer. And it must be, I don't know if I can make a connection here, but that that postictal state after a seizure is particularly a very strenuous mm -hmm. seizure, a very intense post dictal state, I can relate to that almost like the post-dictal stage of sudden loss. Absolutely, yes. Incoherent word, mm -hmm. word salad. 
much. I could only imagine there is definitely that, that brain fog and the whole, you know, you're just kind of floating. You're just, you're there, but you're not really there. As we go through this podcast in our series and we get to know Rachel and Joe more, it's going to be great for our listeners to know just how epilepsy can really affect people that don't even have epilepsy, but in a way that is so drastic. And so profound. So you so profound. So life. Life-changing. Like your, your life will never be the same. You can feel it so physically too, grief. And we can, we can, we'll have another episode about this. That's our favorite line. We'll have another episode about this. <laughs> yeah. But grief is so physical sometimes. For me, it was just like this pit in my stomach and that pit returns sometimes. Like your whole body hurting after a seizure sometimes. It's similar to that, even though, I mean, I physically didn't do anything drastic like a seizure but I just find that so interesting. And, and just like the idea of floating when I had my, when I saw my first counselor, grief counselor, after Joe passed away, we did not hit it off. And one thing you're supposed to do, one thing like it's, it's usually a no, no is to like have, like have your patient who's suffering from intense grief. Maybe it, maybe if they're a pediatric patient, but an adult patient, usually your creative senses are turned off after grief. Mm-hmm. And in the first session, I was handed a notebook and like some crayons and I was told to like draw what I'm feeling. And, you know, I could get barely basic facts uh, down about my life confidently. I let alone can't draw what I was feeling. I couldn't play piano anymore. I couldn't sing anymore. I couldn't creative write. My, my, my diary entries were terse, very short, all over the board, mesh. And so it's like somebody after you've just had a seizure saying, here, Katie, here's a crayon and crayons in a notebook, like draw, draw how you're feeling. You feel like crap. Yeah. First, I wouldn't draw anything in the, the book where I draw a straight line or a big old pile of line. I, yeah, I wouldn't draw anything. A big old pile of <laughs> yeah. SHRT. Yeah, like, ah, yes. I, that's an exact connection of grief and post-ictal state. What I ended up drawing was my body, like in one corner, mm-hmm. and my head diagonally across the page in the far corner that's literally how I felt was just like floating like just detached my head detached from the rest of my body and that's like and and I'm 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 a decent like artist but it was like total stick figure like this is my body this is my head this is how I feel about our session right now (laughs) that's going to be your body and head in in a couple seconds no yeah (laughs) you're disconnected you're looking at yourself kind of seeing yourself almost like almost like it's surreal like you've gone into this other world but you're in reality and in real time but you still can't put things together yeah it's like you're the outside looking in and it's very bizarre it's very bizarre we can connect 
with that, I think that's, that's weird how like, <laughs> we might be the, I think we are the very first podcast in the world to connect grief with epilepsy. Maybe there's others out there, but I think we're going to be doing that a lot because yeah. of just like, it's just an altered state of reality, right? Yes. Altered, yes. Uh, physically and mentally. Yeah. Yeah. We go, we go through it both and you hit it both. So I'm dragging this on, but I just want to really get in this fascinating quotation I read that Levinus Lemnius wrote. And this is what like, I think is it, is it the core of our podcast right here? Levinus Lemnius, this philosopher urged people to not be afraid of epilepsy, that it's natural. There was this issue where epileptic patients who like had a massive seizure, people thought they looked like they were dying and then they would be buried during the Renaissance period. And they'd be buried too early before they were dead because it, it sometimes might look like a person is dying during a seizure. So he wrote that like those who see seizures and write a person off without hope, so cause them to be buried before their souls are departed from them. For I have found it in our own days and in former ages also that some have broken the coffin and lived again. Break the coffin. Break the coffin. Break the coffin. Yeah, I love it. It's so fitting because I, I, so often I think we're written off way too early. And I believe a lot of that stems from the stigma and a lot of reason why people hide it and don't talk about it, don't take their medicine properly, everything. I love it. I love it. I love it. We keep, we've got to break the coffin. We've, we've got to let them know that, that we can't just be written off. It's a, epilepsy is a very frightening, frightening disease. And might I say it might be more frightening than some even even like a neurological disease like Alzheimer's in some ways, in which, I mean, the patient physically, if you're having a tonic-clonic seizure, looks like, like when I've seen a video before, that looks like the end. I mean, they fall to the ground and convulse and maybe liquid comes out of their mouth. Mm-hmm. There might be blood from biting on the tongue. They go to the bathroom, feed themselves. Feed themselves, yeah. yeah. There's nothing pretty about a seizure. And yeah, blood out of my, I have so much extra saliva mixed in with the blood. So it literally, it looks like a murder scene. Yeah. It does. It's all over my clothes. It's all over my bed. It's, and then that's if I'm laying down, like thankfully enough, if I'm standing up, that's when I can really cause bodily harm. Oh, how scary. And then, and then to be buried. Yeah. Right away you can, yeah. Just like say you knock yourself out and you're just like kind of unconscious on top of just having a seizure. And then you're just buried alive. <laughs> and you wake up here and you're in the coffin. <laughs> so yeah. before, before it gets to that point, Katie and I want to reiterate, break the coffin whether you know somebody with epilepsy or you are epileptic, like you have a long life ahead of you, most likely. And and don't be afraid of this disease. No. Head on. Yeah, basically um, with 
the proper di epilepsy diagnosis, you can still lead a successful and normal life and not hide behind your diagnosis. Have the confidence and pride to talk about it. And that leads to education and enlightenment in our society and internationally. Definitely, it's, it's a great thing to get out there and break that coffin, talk about it. If it's not you that has it and it's somebody else, then talk to them about it. Ask them how they're doing, ask them how they're feeling. They might smile all day long, all month long, but they might be actually really struggling. Break the coffin. Break the coffin. I think, I think if Joe were able to break the coffin and be with us today, I think he, his advice to patients with epilepsy out there would be just to, to live, to, to, to live fully and not, not let this, I mean, he experienced everything from being handicapped in a wheelchair for most of high school to spending, you know, six months at a time in the hospital during his adolescence that really disrupts your life that makes it hard to do anything, but it's your attitude and not giving up that you will find something that will control or improve your seizures. There is always something new coming out. Mm -hmm. There's always hope. I absolutely agree. Uh, one of my favorite quotes and a quote that I tell myself, I like to say it's my own quote is I might have epilepsy, but epilepsy doesn't have me. And I tell that to myself when I'm having a hard day or when epilepsy kind of just comes up and it's just like, that's the reason behind something, then, you know, okay, yeah, you've got epilepsy, but don't let it have you. Don't let it be in control of this situation. Like, if it's going to stress you out more, then just let it go because I can't be stressed out. It's a trigger. If it's going to make me not sleep very well, then I, I can't think about it. I can't worry about it. There's so many, so many things that like when epilepsy in the daily comes and I have to just be like, okay, yeah, but no, I can't be like, oh my gosh, we have this, you know, we can't live our life. No, I think you're completely right. And I'd hope almost every epileptic would feel that way. Like we have only one life. We might have epilepsy, but let's live our life to the best and let's not let epilepsy hold us back. You're absolutely spot on with that. And it's hard because you have such challenging days that you face mm -hmm. and there's so many different factors, mm -hmm. diet, exercise, mm -hmm. medication, mm -hmm. compliance, yeah. family, friends, support, you know, the list goes on and on. Yeah. And when those little things come up, like, you know, we're talking about medicines making you tired and like, say one day you're just like, oh my gosh, I'm so tired. And you know, it's from your meds, but you can't dwell on it and you can't send yourself down a rabbit hole. And you have to just say, you know what, it is what it is. I accept it. And I'm just going to kind of move on. It is what it is. And then there's bigger things where you have an event planned or a vacation planned. And while well, you have a seizure in the morning, you're supposed to leave. And well, now you've missed your flight. Now your whole vacation. I mean, there, that's a, a bigger grandiose thing where you're just like, oh my gosh. And you're just very irritated and very let down. And, but you can't, you still have to have that hope. 
you still have to have the hope. But it just is so fitting with what I experienced with grief too, just wanting to like, especially at the beginning and, you know, having certain days where you just want to give up and just let the grief completely consume you. I was at a point where I only felt comfortable when I was sad, like, because I thought that was honoring Joe because I felt sad and I could just live. I could just fall deeper and deeper and deeper into this hole, never really reaching felt like this, just this, this, this like tunnel I was falling through, like Alice in Wonderland, but there's no bottom. You just sink, you sink into your own feelings and it, it almost like possesses you the grief and you can't live like that because I, for a long time I'd stopped. I didn't have any photos of myself. I didn't want people taking photos of me. I didn't want any photos on my phone of myself because I just wanted to disappear because it just felt so heavy like epilepsy you have to live learn to live beside it it's always there it's on your shoulder grief is on my shoulders it feels heavy some days like a weighted blanket Mm -hmm. Um, but other days it feels a lot lighter and I think epilepsy or any neurological disease that's really heavy like that and serious or grief you just have to live beside it don't let it possess you yep yep that takes time Truly, and you know that grief is going to be with you for the rest of your life. Yes. It's, he's never going away. The situation is never going away. Yes. And it's learning to live with it and learning to live the best life you can with it. There's no cure to either. To either. Yeah. See, we're, yeah, we're just, we're going to live our best lives and we're going to break the coffin. Both of us. <laughs> Both of us. That's why it's our hashtag. I really have enjoyed unmasking the the layers of those living with epilepsy and the extreme history of treatments or lack thereof. We've only had enough time to cover up to about the early 1900s, which we'll talk more about when we talk about the presidents and things like that. We have some novelists, we have some we have a lot. We have a long list of people that we need to talk about. But unfortunately, epilepsy is still one of the most misconstrued neurological disorders. Awareness and education is essential. Society's work is not done. Let it be known that epileptics are courageous, strong, creative, intelligent, and full of potential. Even through the history we have discussed, it is clear it is possible to lead a normal and successful life, regardless of if you have just petite mal seizures or tonic clonic seizures, it is most definitely possible to lead a normal and successful life with grief or with epilepsy. Couldn't have said it better. If you have any topic ideas, questions, or research you are curious about, We would love to hear from you. Drop us a message on our Instagram account, 26podcast, or email us at info at 26.org. Thank you for listening.